Why don't we all stand, and uh, we're going to read the passage of Scripture that we're going to be looking at here today. So why don't you guys open up to the book of First Peter chapter 4. First Peter chapter 4. We are in the home stretch of Peter. Uh, if you guys don't have a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. We have some ushers that would love to get you a Bible. If you don't currently own a Bible, go ahead and keep this. It's our gift to you. Or you can uh, just go ahead and follow along on the screen. Uh, I want to read uh, Scripture, so give attention to what God has to say. First Peter chapter 4, verse 12 through 19 goes like this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings so that you may also rejoice and be glad when the glory, when his glory is revealed. Verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Yet if any one of you suffers as a Christian, let him be not ashamed, but let him glorify God in, that time, in his name. In this time for judgment, it is time for this judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and of the sinner? Lastly, verse 19, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And this is the word of the Lord. I want to pray and then we'll get to work. Jesus, we thank you for what you have to speak to us here this morning. We ask even now, Lord, that you would just uh, open our hearts, our minds, our thoughts, our imaginations to what you have to speak to us. Help me, God, as a communicator, as a teacher, to communicate that which is on your heart and anything else that's not on your heart, that the Holy Spirit would just flush it away and replace it with things that come from you. And so we just entrust our time and our moments into your hands right now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you all grab a seat? So I want to begin just kind of with a quick little question. And uh, what would you do on the worst day of your life? In fact, that's the title of today's message, what to do on the worst day of your life. What would you do? What have you done? Maybe some of you have already kind of had that moment, right? Uh, and maybe you're like right in the middle of that like moment and you're trying to figure out what would you do? But I want you to think about this. Now, I think maybe three years ago, a message like this could be easily perceived as kind of morbid or just focus on unnecessary, uh, you know, party-crushing sentiment. But the fact of the matter is, over the past two and a half years, if there's anything that we've learned, that we've gleaned or realized, is that uh, the real possibility or plausibility of suffering and pain and hardship and challenge and difficulty, uh, we are way more vulnerable to that than we've ever even dared imagine. Would you, would you agree with that? Past two and a half years. In fact, if I were to ask for a show of hands, which I'm not, if I were to ask you, how many of you would say over the past two and a half years, three years, that you have experienced uh, one of the most terrible seasons of your life, so, so minimal, terrible, just terrible, or a bad day, all the way to the worst day of your life? The news came in, the circumstance happened, uh, immediately your anxiety spiked, you went in a fetal position, tears came, that emotional trauma struck you. Uh, the big question is, what did you do? 
What have you done? What should you do? Those are the questions I want for us to think about. The reason why I think this is so important is because, for one, this is exactly what Peter is writing to a collective of followers of Jesus scattered throughout the ancient Roman world. And he's writing to them to equip them, to prepare them. Why? Uh, bottom line, Peter's a, Peter's a, a good pastor. He, he loves them. He cares about them. Uh, he's not just going around with his head in clouds acting as if everything is awesome. He realizes we live in a really broken world. And because we live in a broken world, uh, we are subject to breaking with this world. We are subject to oftentimes being in opposition to this world. And that's really the big issue here. It's not just so much Peter's concerned over the fact that, hey, uh, bad things might happen to you, and therefore you're going to find yourself in a bad moment, you know, some form of crisis. I think really specifically Peter's thinking about circumstances that have been brewing in culture at large or in his societal uh, domain but would one day kind of brim over, spill over. All of it was kind of fomenting within the time in which Peter's writing. And he recognizes, because he's, you know, he's able to kind of read the signs of the times and read the culture and read the headlines and know a little bit what's going on within Twitter headlines and the political moment. He realizes that things are kind of trending towards potential bad or at least a hard future. And so what Peter's trying to do is say, look, guys, followers of Jesus, embrace it, accept it. It will come. And when it comes, as it comes, I want you to have a particular posture in a way of prepping yourself so that when it happens, you will not just be simply washed away within the tsunami of pain and hardship and difficulty. So, Again, like I said, for some of you, you've kind of gone through this past two and a half years. You've gone through a terrible moment or the worst moment, or maybe some of you kind of went through it unscathed. You're like, I, nothing bad really happened. I didn't even get COVID. You're all happy. You're all good. You're all ready to go for the future. But the fact of the matter, again, if anything, if you've just paid attention to over the past two and a half years, is that all human beings are susceptible to it. That suffering and pain and hardship does not discriminate at all. Based upon anything, age, skin color, nationality, whatever. We are all prone to it. All potential victims of when it comes. So with that being said, as I am thinking about this, I think it would probably be good for us just to consider a little bit about the history or the historical context in which uh, Peter's writing. I think this is helpful for us. Again, one of the reasons why we gather is not just simply to give a, a pep talk, but to really align our hearts with what God's doing, which part of that is to try to understand a little bit about what's happening in the context to which uh, the author is writing. And so in order to do that well, sometimes it requires us to nerd out a little bit upon history, which I'm totally cool with it. Hopefully both of you are okay with that as well. So I want to show you a little slide and we'll kind of go into this real briefly, just kind of thinking about what Peter was thinking about in the time that he had written this type of stuff. And I think if anything, it'll at least help us to catch a little glimpse as to uh, how we can embrace ourselves for the circumstances that we might find ourselves even in the midst of. So with that being said, um, as you can look at the slide here, uh, it's important, I think, to know a little bit of the political climate in which they lived in. So these Christians lived throughout the ancient Roman world. So for the most part, Christians by this time is around early 60s. 
Uh, so probably about 30 years or so after Jesus had resurrected from the dead and ascended to heaven. And now this community of people that were loyal to him were beginning to spread throughout the ancient Roman world. Uh, you can imagine as they began to, uh, you know, implant themselves in particular communities, their practices, the things that they did were foreign. They were completely misunderstood. They were definitely a minority group. In fact, a lot of people conflated uh, what this Christian movement was with uh, early first century Jews. They didn't really know the dis- difference between them. Uh, just like many of us from a Western mindset, we might not know the distinction between Muslims like Sunni and Shiite. We just think, oh, they're all the same. They're absolutely not the same. Do not say that they're all the same to a Shiite. Oh, you guys are just all Sunnis. Nope. Battles, blood has been shed over that type of stuff. But the point that I'd make is this, is that with that, Jews and Christians were very distinct, obviously, but nonetheless, as minority groups spread throughout the ancient world, they had practices that were largely foreign. They misunderstood. In fact, one of the chief um, arguments against Christians in the first century was that, get this, ready for this? They were atheists and cannibals. Some of you are like, wait, what? How in the world were they atheists? Because Romans had gods, deities that they worshipped, like Zeus and Thor and whatnot. But the, I'm sorry, Thor, Thor is from another kind of adaptation, but you get the idea. <laughs> Seriously, like, if that's from more Norse, but they had their own interpretations of that. But they had these gods, Greek and Roman gods, that they would worship. And so Christians basically said, we don't believe in Zeus. We don't worship the goddess Diana. So it's like, what, do you mean you don't believe in Diana? No, no, I don't believe it. So you're an atheist. Well, sure, I guess. That's kind of the accusation. That was. Now, the reason why that was a big deal is because these, uh, these pagan entities uh, were viewed to have been giving uh, power and ability and strength and unity to the community. And so if you are part of this minority group who's like, I don't enter into the whole Zeus worship thing, you're basically viewed as a counterculturalist. Someone that is basically saying, I stand against that. And so when battles are fought and lost, you might be to blame for that. Because you're refusing to go with the collective. Does that make sense? So you choosing atheism in that context, or at least really more of a robust theism, uh, would basically put yourself at danger. Uh, the whole cannibalism type of idea was when Christians gather together, they would eat the bread and the blood of Jesus. We call that communion or the Eucharist. And so again, pagans or non-Christians, they didn't understand that. It was like, we hear that they gather together in some closed door room and they drink blood and they eat flesh. They're cannibals. So these were the accusations that were made against them. Again, obviously, uh, propaganda and wrong or misinformed. But nonetheless, we've lived and we live currently in an age where we realize it doesn't really matter what truth is. As long as you get the Twitter mobs on you, you are right for doxing. Simple as that. It's as simple as that. Does not matter what truth is or right or wrong. You are you. You violated the code. You've 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 been canceled, and you will pay. And that's the world that we live in currently. And again, things go viral way more faster than they did back then. But nonetheless, what we see back then is they found themselves in this this hostile environment. Now, you need to know a little bit about Caesar Nero because he plays into this entire storyline as well. Um, he lived from around 8037 to 8068. He, he committed suicide at age 31. Uh, he was a very, very important strategic figure, uh, within the, Ro- the Roman, uh, uh, leadership structure. Uh, he became Caesar after his, uh, father-in-law, actually adopted father, uh, passed away. And as he rose to power, he's in his early 20s. So imagine like a guy that's 23 to 25 years old, uh, basically taking on the most 
powerful uh, position of the entire known Western world. You got all this power, all this access to money and women and bodies and drink and all forms of uh, debauchery. And so that's exactly what happened was it destroyed him. And uh, all sorts of scholars and theologians would basically write about him that uh, not only was he a terrible guy, but he was tyrannical, self-indulgent, and debauched. And uh, there's uh, there's lots of uh, historical account that likely he started or was responsible for uh, hiring thugs that would have started the burning of the city of Rome. Some have suggested that it was because he wanted to clear out a large portion of the city. It's kind of the idea of like, you know, removing uh, old growth in order to bring new growth in. And as Rome was burning, there's all these stories, or at least, and again, sometimes it's hard to determine what's myth versus actual fact, but according to the myth, at least for sure, that it was assumed that he basically accused Christians and Jews as being the ones that were responsible for causing Rome to burn as a result of that. Uh, according to some accounts, he would actually take Christians and he would put a, a pole, a spike through their body and then set them on fire with tar and pitch. And he would run through his gardens at night on his chariots or drive through his gardens in his chariots while naked human bodies, Christians, would light up his garden. He was, a, he was literally declared or viewed as a madman. Uh, it was actually believed that uh, Nero was the one that was responsible for putting Peter to death. Again, the very guy who we just read his letter at some point. Now, uh, we know when uh, he died. In fact, it's kind of interesting that tomorrow marks, you know, some form of anniversary when Rome began. So we know the date, J- uh, July 18th, when Rome actually began to burn. And so uh, it's believed that he was the one that was responsible for putting Peter to death. Uh, Peter died, according to tradition, uh, on a cross. But when Peter was about to be crucified, he actually asked to be crucified upside down because he says, I'm not worthy to die in the same manner of my Lord. And it was believed that he was crucified upside down. Nero was the one responsible for that. And again, one last little like uh, trivia for you to think about, and then we'll kind of move on into the body of this, is uh, it was actually believed, if you've ever read the book of uh, Revelation, or at least heard someone talk about it, um, you are for sure, all of you, no doubt, are familiar with the number 666. Many scholars and theologians actually believe that that number has some sort of symbolic code uh, referencing or pointing to actually Nero himself. Which is fascinating. Like the, the, the book of Revelation, according to some, had been viewed as sort of a, a code book writing about the, the triumph of Jesus overcoming all sorts of wickedness and evil, of which Caesar Nero kind of embodies that spirit of Antichrist or destruction or death. And so again, the point that I want to make is that, is that the people to whom Peter's writing lived under the shadow of this politician who's ruling, quote-unquote, listen, ruling their world in which they lived in. It was hostile. It was hard. For them to be able to face the challenges that they faced uh, and to maintain their baptismal identity, uh, being able to identify, we are people of Jesus, became increasingly more and more difficult, especially when claiming loyalty to Jesus Put you in the category of, so you are an atheist. You are a cannibal. You're one of those wicked people. That's you? 
oh my gosh. And so that has financial implications upon your life because the moment the rumor gets out, you're an atheist, you're a cannibal, how well do you think it's going to go for your copper business? How well do you think it's going to go for your, you know, your, your grain business as you go to work in your guild every morning? Now rumors are spreading. Or setting up booths within those worker guilds where in order for you to enter into the market, you've got to offer your incense as a worship, as an act of worship, as an act of loyalty to Zeus. You offer your incense upon the altar to say, I'm loyal to Zeus. But now as a Christian, you're like, I'm not loyal to Zeus. I'm not going to offer incense on that altar. Now you face financial implications upon your life. And again, there's all sorts of research that's been done, especially the past several years, uh, with regard to like, there's a book recently that was uh, written, it was called The Madness of Crowds. And he just spends the entire time thinking about literally this, how crowds take upon kind of like a, 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 an idea of its own, a, a, a torture, an evil of its own, and begin to torture uh, human souls, whether it be virtually or in some cases even physically. That it's crowds given misinformation or propaganda that oftentimes begin to incite incredible violence. This is exactly what these Christians were living under. And again, I think, if anything, if you are someone that is deeply seeking to be loyal to Jesus in this world today, it's become increasingly well aware, as you pay attention, that there's not a warmth of welcome. Especially in California. I mean, California is kind of like this hotbed production of many of these ideas that are kind of part of sort of the techno-utopianism. The idea that we can create utopia through technology, through a virtual world, through the metaverse, and through creating whatever your online avatar. You can become great and forever and ever and ever not have to die. This idea that as Christians, we're like, man, we live in a world that for the most part is not warmly welcoming and embracing the the beauty of, of Jesus. So what does that look like for us? So again, so you think about this, Western culture is actually not trending towards godliness or holiness. Uh, even though social justice culture or techno-utopianism uh, oftentimes claim to make this world better, which is exactly what they do. They're, they're gospel claims, by the way, both of them. Gospel claims, claims of goodness, good news. And the claims oftentimes are tethered to this idea that the world will become better as a society and or you as a self-realized individual. Even though these are gospel claims, they oftentimes fail to deliver. And yet, as they begin to break down, as we seek to continue to live as followers of Jesus, I think it's important as well to not dip over into the other avenue of thinking kind of like a... I don't know, uh, martyrdom type of mindset. Like, woe is us. We're just like victims of the world. It's not at all what Peter's inviting them to think about. He's inviting them to actually live victoriously, which is crazy. They're the losers. But he's saying, no, no, no. You are victors. And this is who you are. He's inviting them to think about a different identity. Not walking around, woe is me, life's hard, everybody's against us. Us Christians are trying to do what's right, and the rest of the world, it's not trying to do what's right, is in opposition to us. That's not at all the posture that Peter is inviting them to think about. 
fact, I would go so far as to say one last thing before we jump into this, is that don't be concerned about being on the right side of history. Be concerned about being on the right side of eternity. And I think that's what Peter's saying. Because the right side of history, those goal lines, apparently, seem to keep moving. They just keep moving. So at one point or one season of our lives, it might be this is what righteousness looks like in and as a citizen of the United States of America. To be able to be that, you've got to live this particular way or think this particular group think or act this particular thing or wave these particular colors. And therefore, you will be one that will be recognized as, oh, you're part of the whole solution, the societal solution. Or you say, I, no, I'm, I'm, team, I'm team Jesus. You know, I'm not really about the donkey nor really about the elephant. You know, it sounds so cliche. But I'm about the lamb. So cheesy and cliche. But the, but the fact of the matter is, it's like, that, that's really what we're claiming. We belong to the lamb. We belong to Jesus who gave himself for us. And this is what he's inviting us to consider. So what I want to do right now is I want to kind of spend the next two weeks. Uh, this is, again, this is like two for the price of one, so think Groupon. Uh, this is one sermon broken down into two weeks. Uh, I'm not going to be able to get through all of it today, but I'm going to be able to jump into it. There's five things I think Peter wants us to consider to think about when it comes to suffering and how to arm ourselves or equip ourselves or to prepare ourselves. So when the worst day of our lives happens, begins to happen or we begin to move into it or it takes place or even if it's something that you've gone through of course there may be more challenging difficult days ahead how can we embrace that in such a way so that rather than becoming a victim to horrible circumstances we can actually with peter and all sorts of other christians throughout the history of the church rise embrace the victory of jesus and move into a new life that god is creating for us in the future so, number one, I want to just jump right into this. We're going to take a look at this. So, number one, are we ready? Write these down. Number one, the first thing I think that Peter wants us to know that you should do on the worst day of your life is, number one, remind yourself that you are loved by God. Peter starts this entire segment by saying, verse 12, he says, beloved, beloved. He's writing to this community of people. He, for some reason, in the middle of this letter, or at least towards the end of this letter, he just wants to remind them again, just in case they forget. Why? Because them, just like us, just like me, we're prone to spiritual amnesia. We just forget. Forgetfulness is kind of like our middle name. It's very easy. It's one of the reasons why sometimes people ask, well, why should I come to church all the time or every week or at least make a cadence of it? Because we are all prone to forgetfulness. And over time, you add, you know, week upon week upon week of not being reminded of who you are and to whom you belong to. It's very easy for us to then drift into whatever type of label or identity that culture around us is saying that this is who you are. And then we forget ourselves. And that becomes a label that has limited mileage. And when it wears out, we wear out with it. Instead, the identity that Peter's saying for us, he says, remember, you're beloved. You're beloved by God. I think this plays into another way of thinking about this is that when we find ourselves in these places where uh, suffering and hardship hits us, one of the very first things that we oftentimes find ourselves questioning is where is God and why is God not stepped up? Does he not love me? Have I failed? Maybe some of you have been through circumstances before where a really bad situation befalls you. The very first thought that comes to your mind is, what did I do wrong? 
And we begin to think, well, maybe this is God's penalty against me. Maybe God's angry with me. And therefore, God's dropping this horrible circumstance into my life because I did something wrong or I didn't, you know, help out someone to do right or I didn't give to that homeless person that was in need or I didn't show kindness to that person or I was mean to my spouse or whatever. We begin to sort of unpack the reason why. The point of the matter is all of that type of uh, thinking and processing is oftentimes fueled by the narration of, of Satan himself, the evil one. It's, we're just, we're feeding off of a mindset that's, that doesn't belong to God. No, the story of the gospel over and over again is that you are loved by God. And one of the chief ways to identify and to address the fact that just because someone is going through suffering does not mean that that suffering equals not being loved by God is Jesus. Peter will consistently return back to Jesus and say, consider Jesus. Well, what about Jesus? Jesus suffered. But Jesus was beloved by God. Jesus didn't do anything wrong. So it cannot be that just because, now I want to be really clear here, that does not mean that we may face circumstances in life. So if you go out and you rob a bank or whatever reason, you drink a little bit too much at that little party that you were at last night and you got pulled over because you got, you were driving and you swerved, you might have hit someone, a little fender bender, you might even cause even more damage. But the point of the matter is this, is that, that that's on you. That's something that we have incurred upon ourselves. We brought that into our own lives. But that's not God judging us. That's not God angry and casting thunderbolts down upon our lives as if somehow he is this vindictive being. But instead, he, he loves us. He's there with us in the midst of these hardships and trials and tragedies. And this is what Peter wants these people to be reminded. So the way that I think Peter wants us to think through this is that you and I, we have to become really good at preaching this truth to ourselves. Whatever means possible, we have to become really good at preaching the fact you're loved. I don't care how you do it, how you figure it out. I don't care if you got to get a tattoo or you got to post it up on your mirror. I don't care what you do. Figure out a way that works with you, works with your life, works with the cadences of your life. Do what you got to do, but preach this message to yourself when you find yourself in those worst days. And if you can't, and there's going to be moments you cannot, there will be times and occasions where you are so winded and so exhausted and so tired and so incapable even in your own strength to do that and this is where having community around us the right tribe of people around us that begins to fill in those blanks where you can't this is where i would even just ask you who is your tribe who are your people who are the ones that you surround yourself with I say this oftentimes to people that are maybe even thinking about or playing around the idea of getting married. Like, this is one of the reasons why, by the way, that sometimes it gets misunderstood when, when the New Testament writer says, don't be unequally yoked together with non-believers. Sometimes, sometimes people think that as sort of like, like the writer of the New Testament, like angrily just try to impose, you know, horrible restrictions upon another person just as a killjoy. Not at all. What he's saying is that surround yourself with people that know and live in the same narrative as you live in. I mean, imagine having someone that does not live according to that narrative in the gospel. And here you are in the worst day of your life facing whatever type of diagnosis or circumstance or traumatic or situation you find yourself in the midst of. And them not being able to even know where to begin 
in conveying the love of God because they themselves don't even know it. So the big idea behind this is just surround yourself with the right people that are deeply connected to the story of God, the gospel, that have the Holy Spirit living and flourishing and moving in them. This is one of the reasons why I would say this. Really, at the end of the day, I think if anything, the past two and a half years has shown us is that real Christianity is not just by about how much you know about God. Just showing up at a church does not make one someone that is alive to the things of God. The way that gets peeled back is when we find, especially when we find ourselves in these moments of just trauma, where do we turn to? If you want to think of it this way, it's like, what is the root system beneath the tree of your life? How robust is it? How far down does it go? And if at some point you may even do a self-assessment and be like, I don't really know, man. I've been a Christian for 30 years of my life. I know a lot of Bible. I know how to chart out the book of Revelation. I know how to like throw down certain trivial types of ideas about the Bible. But when it comes to like actually getting on my knees and praying to God and seeking the Holy Spirit for empowerment, I don't even know where to begin. I get a little bit nervous when I'm alone with God. Man, the idea of being alone with God and feeling nervous, man, honestly, and there's no guilt or, or, or condemnation to be expressed here at all. But brothers and sisters, one of the most freest places that you and I should be able to, to be and to express ourselves is alone with God. Man, if, if for some reason in that moment you're just like, I don't really know, I feel kind of weird, I want to run, I want to look at my cell phone, I want to drink a glass of wine, I want to do anything I can to distract myself from the presence of God, that, that should be a sign of like something's not right. Imagine being married. And as long as you're like doing something that's entertaining, you're like, our marriage is amazing. Well, what have you been doing? We go to movies, we are in public engagements, we're hanging around with a bunch of friends. But what happens when it's just you and them? Let's even take it any further. What happens if it's just you and them and there's nothing in between you? Like literally, like Genesis 1, both naked. Are you ashamed or unashamed? That begins to put the finger upon the depth of what God wants in our lives in terms of relationship with him. Naked and unashamed. In other words, nothing in between me and him. No Bible verses I'm trying to produce. No merit I'm trying to point to. Say, God, look at what I've done here for you. None of that. Just God... Before you, I bring nothing. I have nothing to offer. But in your presence, I know that I know that I know that I'm beloved by you. Flaws, brokenness, messed up, family of origin, baggage I've inherited, all of it. And yet you love me. I honestly believe that to the degree that you imbibe this narrative, that you are loved, period, by God. That that is going to become the beginning stage as to how you will begin to navigate sufferings and hardships and trauma and circumstances of pain throughout the duration of your life. I want to jump on to the very next thing and begin to think about the next movement that Peter points out for us is that not only does he want us to be reminded that you and I are loved by God, the second thing he wants us to remember is that suffering is actually part of this life and really that you're not alone. None of us are alone. Because again, I think the next thing that often happens when we go through a challenging time, we begin to think, I'm alone. Like, nobody else has gone through this. Have you ever 
had moments like that. Um, I'll tell you a quick little like personal story. It might have been seven years ago. I had some issues with my throat, and it was would have led to I needed a surgery on my throat. I had some sort of weird growth, and 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 literally sitting down with the doctor, I'm like, okay, so what could be the potential downsides of all this? He's like, oh, you might never talk again. And I'm like, wow, as a as a pastor, that's kind of that's a man, that's a sucker punch. That's not good. I'll never talk again. Like I might get might lose my job like okay and not just my job but like my passion like i love this i enjoy this um i live for this uh it's it's not the sum total of my identity but it's it's what god has allowed me to be able to do to serve him but i was literally faced with an existential crisis my existence my very existence was was throttled how will i navigate and it was easy in that moment I and mean, definitely there's moments in my life when i in that season where just like overcome by self-pity have you guys ever been overcome by self-pity you know what i'm talking about like you just like overwhelmed like woe is me nobody else is going through this circumstance and why am i having to be the one to go through this why couldn't they and you can throw out names of people like you know your enemies and whatnot but none of it's good because all of it just kind of like foments into something really bad and toxic in your soul but one of the things I think that Peter wants him to know is that whatever types of hostility that you may be finding yourselves going through right now with the culture at large, as a result of popular opinion, as a result of the political movements that are at, at bay within the culture at large, again, which we're moving, progressing towards this burning of the city. I don't think none of that had actually happened yet at the time that Peter was writing, but there was this movement trend towards social degradation that he's prepping these people saying it, it's, it potentially will come. And uh, again, when they find themselves in these moments, he recognizes that it's really easy for you all to begin to think, like maybe maybe we're alone. But he wants to remind them. Listen to what First Peter 4, 12 again says. Do not be surprised at the fire trial when it comes upon you. And the word you, you can actually translate that y'all, y'all. It's plural. It's not just you. A lot of times we read the Bible as if it was written directly to you. I want to get some like humble, humbling news for you. The, the Bible was not written to you. It was written for you. You're included in it, but it's not necessarily written directly to you. This was this letter was written to a bunch of Christians living 2,000 years ago. Actual human beings that live in a society and a culture. We're we're eavesdropping right now. Now this story belongs to us. And again, don't don't get me wrong. So so we can eavesdrop and we can hear bits of information. And be like, oh man, that's good. That's a great nugget. I'm going to receive that and imbibe that. That's good because that's how we should be reading it. But first of all, realize what that causes us to realize. As we go through suffering, we're, we're part of this entire body of human beings that have gone through suffering together. You're not alone. None of us are alone. We go through this as a community. Don't be surprised by the fire trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Again, it's really easy to begin to just think, man, this is unique to me. The word strange means foreign. That's foreign to me, like I, I shouldn't be having this happen to me. Why me? All those questions that oftentimes come to us. He's saying, listen, don't go that route because in reality, we're in this together. And then he uses this little phrase, fiery trial. Um, it's possible that Peter, because he was Jewish and very familiar with the ancient historical stories of the Torah, he perhaps was thinking about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's kind of immediately what comes to my mind. If you guys are familiar with these three guys, they were 
another friends of God by the name of Daniel, if you're familiar with the book of Daniel. Uh, these are guys, uh, chapter 3 of the book of Daniel, that uh, similarly, actually, they actually lived in Babylon, the, the actual great empire of Babylon. And when they were taken captive, they were living in Babylon as captives in a foreign city that did not understand or like them. And yet they were being commanded to worship this large golden statue. And they all collectively said, no, we won't. And so imagine in your mind this community of, I don't know, hundreds, if not thousands of, you know, people that were employed by the government. They're all bending their knee to this golden statue. And yet Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are all standing up saying, we, we can't bend our knee to this golden statue. That would violate our, our conscience and, 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 and frustrate our relationship with God. So we cannot do this. And as a result of that, they were thrown in this fiery furnace. If you're familiar with the story, that it says that Daniel, or that they look and he seems the third the fourth walking amidst them uh, like the son of man. So God is there with them in the midst of this fire. So it's possible Daniel's thinking about this. It's also possible that Daniel, the word that he uses, fiery trial, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible is actually translated into Greek. It's called a Septuagint. And so the very same word that's actually used that Daniel uses here in Greek to describe fiery trial, trial is the exact same word that actually appears in two verses. I want to read them to you. Number one, Proverbs chapter 27, verse 21. I read it at the very beginning of the service. Listen to how it says, the crucible is for silver. The furnace is for gold, but the man tested, a man is tested by his praise. The word that he describes there for furnace is literally fiery trial. It's the exact same word. So there's no doubt Peter's thinking this uh, line of logic here. Uh, Psalm 66, verse 10 says this, for you, O God, you've tested us and you have tried us as silver is tried. It's exact same Greek word that he uses here for fiery trial. And so it would seem as if, again, part of what Peter's thinking about is that this challenge that you find yourself going through, it, the aim is not to destroy you. It's to make you. The way silver is made. The way gold is made. It's literally putting something through the fire with the aim of burning out all forms of impurities to refine it. We have that word, to refine something, in order to refine something. Now, again, you could put wood, hay, and, you know, grass cuttings, grass trimmings from your lawnmower into a fire. What will happen? They'll be gone, right? Come back next day. You'll just have nothing but ashes. But if you put silver or gold or any type of other precious metal into that fire, what you come back, again, through process, of course, is you have a purified gold and a purified silver. And this is exactly what Peter's saying, is that you, brothers and sisters, you're loved by God. Secondly, you're not going through this alone. And there's an aim, there's a, a telos by which God has allowed you and is harnessing and carrying you through this moment to do something in you. This is how he would say this at the very beginning, and I'm almost done here, at the very beginning of First Peter chapter 1, verses 6-7. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while you have been grieved with various trials. Exact same word. It goes on in the same verse 7, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, even though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. So what Peter's suggesting to them is that these challenges that you find yourself confronted by, for you, in the moment, they may feel like wave upon wave of overwhelming pain and destruction and trauma. But in the long run, what God is actually doing is he's actually harnessing all of this that might be intended for destruction. 
But God will use it through a cosmic judo move for your good. Because this is what God does. He's able to take death and turn it around into becoming the very source of all things new. That's what God does. How do we know this? Jesus. Like, literally, Jesus is the template. Again, we're not making this up. Jesus becomes the template of everything that the Christian life is patterned after. That God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are alive and at work through this movement that Jesus launched. And that's what Christians were. They were people that said, listen, our narrative, our story, our identity, all that we are is tethered to, anchored in the story of Jesus. What happened with Jesus? Suffering, death, and resurrection is what will happen with us. Suffering, potentially death, followed by resurrection. The distinction between the story of Jesus and all other pagan myths is they have the first two aspects of that triad. They have the suffering and they have the death. You might even add punctuated by good moments. Right? We can even add that even in the Christian life. There's, there's good moments. It's not all bad. There are moments where it's like, this is awesome. You can go for a hike on Madonna Mountain and be like, this is amazing. I live in paradise. Of course we do. We know that. It's the best secret in California. We know this. Don't tell other people about the Central Coast, please. But the point that I would make is this, is that the story of Jesus ends in resurrection slash new life. The story of God's people ends in resurrection, slash new life. And this is why Peter is saying, you guys are loved. God's deeply committed to you. He's not going to forsake you. He's loyal to you. That's literally what the word means. Loyal, devoted, and covenant. We, we take the bread and we drink the cup. And by the way, we do have it in the back. And we have that and we, we've been trying something new over the summers, once a month, just kind of creating special space where we remember this. Each week, it will be continue to be available like it always is. In the very back, there's a table back there. We, we do that as a reminder that our God is not just some sort of distant entity or deity that's detached from us. But he's deeply tethered and committed to us by way of covenant. Covenant. And this is what Peter is reminding them over and over and over again. Jesus would say this in the book of John, chapter 16, verse 33. He says, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome this world. Take heart, I've overcome this world. So I think what Jesus is doing, what Peter's doing, what really the, some of the New Testament writers are doing, is they're creating contrast. They're saying that this world in which we currently live in, this world, this operating system, we find ourselves in this matrix, all right? It is perishing. It has incredible flaws, viruses. It's messed up. It's broken. There's no amount of programming that can be initiated to kind of resolve and solve the problems that are part of the code coding system of this operating system in which we live in, in this world. It will, at some point, fail. But his whole point is that I've overcome this world. Not by an act of destruction or decimation, but ultimately by an act of new creation. That's what Jesus implemented. That's why the garden is so symbolic of where Jesus 
rises again from the dead. It's as if the, all of the New Testament writers are saying, hint, hint, hint. Genesis chapter 1 began in a garden. Jesus' whole new project begins in a garden. God is inviting us to look at the new life that Jesus invites us into. And even though we find ourselves still remaining in this world under and subjects to some degree of this operating system and having to pay consequences of the dysfunctionalities of this system and especially conflicts between the system of this world and the system of Jesus, the new life that he's coming, and there will be conflicts that the ideals and the morals and the concepts of flourishing are very distinct from all of that that Jesus is all about. And so what I want to suggest to you that what I think Peter's saying is that even though this world is breaking, Jesus is breaking forth new life right now. And that helps us in this moment of having to face our circumstances, no matter how trialsome or difficult they may be, to realize that what God is doing is in the midst of the suffering, he's forming us as human beings. Character formation. He's taking who you are and reshaping you. It might feel difficult in the moment, but as we begin to arm ourselves with these truths that I think Peter is trying to communicate, to know that we're loved, to know that we are not alone, and that suffering is a part of this world. And I want to end on this big question. So if suffering is indeed a part of this world, what will the next life ultimately look like? Peter has this vision of something else that's breaking through. What will that look like? And this gets really good. I'm going to just finish with this. I'm done. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. I'll just read it to you listen to it. Because this is John, another New Testament writer, who's uh, kind of imagining this future that will one day break through, what that will look like. He says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. And then he goes on to say, And the sea was no more. You know, a lot of times we get hung up on like, why is the sea no more? Like, I want to surf. Like, I do. I truly do. Like, I want good surf in the new creation, right? But the point of the matter is, is I think this is a metaphor that the idea of the sea will be no more is from the sea. Throughout the scripture, you always see sea, oceans as being the source of chaos, disruption, unpredictability. That sea of chaos will be no more. And he goes on to say, and I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, my dwelling place, the dwelling place of God is with man. And I will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them, their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And what Peter's inviting us into, and all the New Testament writers are inviting us to have a vision for, that what God is doing is so good, so profound, so life-changing, life-altering. And again, it doesn't begin someday when we die, when we clock out or tap out. It begins now, that the kingdom of God is breaking in this moment, the very spirit of God that hovered over the primal Genesis 1, whatever that was, is in this moment, hovering over this space, saying, I want to make all things new in your life. I want to take you in the state of your pain and trauma and hardship and suffering right now, and I want to breathe 
life into your circumstances. And this becomes the moment for us to really answer God by saying, yes, on me, breathe afresh, anew, on me, make me new. Give me hope in exchange for my despair. Give me peace, God, in exchange for my chaos. So as we close, I want for us just to think about what are those areas in our lives that God is inviting us, no matter how traumatic or challenging or difficult it may be, that God is inviting us to say yes to him. So I want to finish by inviting us all to stand. I want to just do a practice of prayer over all of us. And as we stand, um, just close your eyes if you would like. And I want you right now just uh, with your eyes closed or in whatever state you find yourself in, just ask God. God, make yourself seen by me, aware by me, known by me. Scripture says that God is nearer than our very breath. He's not far out there. He's not beyond here. And by the way, those thoughts that you might even be entertaining right now, like, well, I've disappointed him so much. Brothers and sisters, that is not the voice of God. That is the voice of the evil one. The voice of God is, I love you. I paid for your sin, your transgression, your brokenness, your evil, your rebellion. And I'm making all things new. Just confess in those things that you have need of. Where are those areas in your life where you find yourself dealing with trauma, or pain, or hardship, or sufferings? And you just need to be reminded afresh that you are loved by God. Right now, I want you to consider the depth to which God has gone to demonstrate his love for you. And I want to pray over us, and then we'll dismiss. Jesus, right now, we just open our hearts wide to you. We ask you, Father, would you just search us, know us, try us. God, those areas where we find ourselves just in the fire, and we feel alone, we feel forgotten, we feel forsaken. God, I pray right now that the word of your spirit would breathe life into them, show them how loved they are by you, how much their life actually matters because you are the one that put your stamp, your image upon their very soul, upon their very body, their very existence. So God, in this moment right now, would you just bring fresh life into our hearts, into this community, and through this community, this family, Lord, as we scatter in all the various places that we find ourselves going, our neighborhoods, our homes, our families, our workspaces, wherever it is that we find ourselves. So empower us to be able to be those people. Make all things new. Spirit of God, breathe life upon who we are. We love you, Lord.